In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and comedian. I'm Saida Varsi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician. And this is A Muslim and a Jew Go There. To kick us off, we're going to actually get to know each other a little bit better, talk about how we were brought up, what it means to be growing up Muslim and Jewish, and what those identities mean for us today. After that, our weekly podcast is going to be tackling some of those big stories of the week that involve Muslims and Jews whether in politics or culture or elsewhere. Shall we get on to that, Fry, talking a bit about how we've come to be people who sort of represent those communities in some way, right? How we came to being people who talk about those things. Because, you know, obviously we are those things. We are Jewish, you are and Muslim. But I think that for me it's sort of like been a bit weird because I'm a writer and comedian. And actually Frank Skinner, my friend, uh, is always saying like, oh, you've turned into a kind of Jewish activist, which sounds like the driest and dullest thing possible. And I always think, oh, really? So I don't define myself like that. But Can I ask you a question, Dave? Yeah. When did you first become Jewish? I think when I was born. No, but I, so I'm going to ask you this well, question actually, again. Probably seven in days later head... when my foreskin was cut off, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, in your head, when in your adult life did you wake up and think, oh, I'm actually Jewish? Well, actually, I think it's the opposite in a way. But I'll explain what I mean, which is that I went to a very, very orthodox primary school. We were not very religious at home. We were a bit religious because my mum was a refugee from Nazism mm. and her parents, who had also managed to get out, were kind of big reform Jews. For anyone who doesn't know, that means they were observant, but in a kind of modern way. So, you know, used to pray not just in Hebrew and would do stuff, but it wasn't sort of extreme. But the school that we went to, which we went to purely because it was the only school in the area in Dollis Hill and Crickwood at the time where a young Jewish boy wouldn't get bullied for being Jewish. Wasn't uh, that brutal? Oh, yeah. Right, right, there it was, yeah. in that, I mean, Dollis Hill and Neesden and places like that was just quite hard in the 1970s. And there were, there were National Front uh, outside our school. There were people who would chuck stones at us. Hmm. So I'm guessing that to actually go to another school would have been complicated. But that school, I had to wear a yarmulke. Yeah. I had to wear sit-sit, which is more than just that. I don't know how many schools do this now, but it's a sort of Mormon vest that you have to wear with tassels. What's the point of it? What's well, the significance of What's the point of, of any it? religious insignia? No, no, what's the significance of the... I have no idea. That's a good question. I don't know. what it, I'm sure there is a symbolic thing for it. But really, I think all of these things are dis designed to promote sort of identity. So one of the things is you wear, it's a vest, but it has these little string tassels and you have to have them showing. And if you don't have them showing, because you'd forgotten to wear your sits here, I would get in trouble. And I would have to say blessings for every meal and grace after meal. It was kosher, and you're not allowed to eat milk after meat, which mm. meant that our custard was made with water, which was absolutely disgusting. And to try and make it more exciting for kids, they would dye it blue, which is, again, hideous. I told my daughter that. She felt sorry for me. There's nothing wrong with the colour blue, though, you know. As a conservative, <laughs> I didn't mean it as a, I didn't mean it as a political thing. <laughs> Honestly, any colour you dye custard apart from yellow 
is a bad thing. Is there anything like that in Islam about no, not I being mean, able to eat milk after meat? The kosher diet is far stricter and than the halal diet. So is I can yeah, so I could go to a Jewish home and practically eat anything and everything as long as I didn't drink wine. Whereas I think if you followed a strict kosher diet, I don't think you could come to a Muslim home and eat anything and everything. So where you know, we've always been brought up to say if you go to a Jewish person's home you can eat anything. All oh, right, that's interesting. So Although there was this moment, you know, when I went to the chief rabbi's the chief rabbi's Which house. chief rabbi was that? Jonathan oh, Sachs? Or yeah, what? yeah, it was Jonathan Sachs and I sat next Next to the chief rabbi, and I, I, I looked across when the meal was served, and I said, "Is this kosher?" <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think, did you mean is this halal? No, no, I, I, it was just a stupid question. Yeah, it's it was quite one a of those question. stupid, li- religiously illiterate questions. <laughs> yeah. And I think I, I could just see his his wife looking at me, thinking, "Really, you've just asked that question? <laughs> you sat at the chief rabbi's house." So, so it was quite an extreme upbringing, but in terms of religion, religion at school but at home I didn't really have that so it was all confusing but I think that's one of the things about being Jewish and I imagine being Muslim is that people have an imagination of what it's like and then the individual experience is always quite fractured and different and individual. Yeah it it is and I think for me growing up I didn't even realise Muslim was a thing I mean, I went to, of course, in, in at home, we bought our meat from a certain place. So I knew it wasn't bought from the main supermarket. Uh, we didn't have alcohol in the house. My parents prayed and we would occasionally pray. And we went to the local mosque to learn Arabic studies. But I didn't think it was a big part of who I was publicly. So because I went to a mainstream state school, both junior school and middle school, aspects of our Muslimness or my Muslim identity just never went to school. Right. I think the only time it did go to school was when we went to high school and the uniform was such that it didn't have leg coverings. So it was like a pinafore dress and then just little socks. And we had permission to wear tights or almost like leggings underneath your pinafore dress. Right. And that's what made you realise that actually you were dressed in a slightly different way to other people with school uniform. For me, I faced prejudice and discrimination when I was younger, but it had nothing to do with my Muslim identity. I mean, I'm visibly a minority. And so if you'd walked into my school when you were a young kid, I wouldn't have known who you were other than a white English person Mm. because I would have looked at you and I wouldn't have been able to identify anything else and would have never assumed that white English people were anything but just white English people and then the rest of us were coloured people Mm. and we would get beat up because we were of colour. So the main taunt for us growing up was everybody got called you know whether whatever version of brown you were from whatever part of the world or even black you were or even dark coloured hair was enough to get called that name and so for me what what people I thought had an issue with was the fact that I had a different slightly different tone skin colour and that was the basis of racism and prejudice and it was you know some of that racism was quite brutal Um, and there would be certain times of the year when term would end and you knew there'd be a big fight between the white school, inverted commas, which was a school which had all white pupils, and then the mixed school, which had white and black Asian minority ethnic pupils. There'd be a big fight of some sort. And then, you know, a term that was used when we were young was packy bashing. You know, that would happen. And then you would run like mad and make sure, hoped that your mum would pick you up that day and then you'd get home safely. But my religious identity 
just did not kick in, I think, until well probably into my 20s, interestingly. I just want to stay on childhood for a bit because I'm really interested in partly in that sense of you when you were younger of just feeling that there was a racism against you because of your skin and sort of my, my experiences when I was young. So to give you an example of something that happened to me, I'd come out of this Jewish school where everyone was Jewish and, you know, most of my parents' friends were Jewish and it felt like a bubble in which you were protected. Then when I was... 12, I was running in a race, and I'm not very good at running, still not very good at running, coming last in this race. Uh, And there was a kid in front of me, and I desperately tried to get past him. And as I went past him, I just sort of stumbled and knocked him over, right? Uh, And I can promise you, with a hand on my heart, that was not me trying not to come last. It was just me being useless and falling over. Right. My form teacher at the time was about 200 yards away, uh, and he was with the PE teacher. I won't name either of these people, but my friend, who was Ashley Baron-Cohen, a relative of Sasha Baron-Cohen, told me afterwards that one teacher, seeing this in the distance, and it looking like I deliberately tripped up this guy, one teacher turned to the other and said, Jew, and the other one said, of course. And I remember being incredibly devastated at the time, partly because I really looked up to these guys. They were my teachers and I thought, I don't know, you know, just like I trust them. And also just that thing of the of the bubble, as it were, shattering. Like, oh, I see this is this is the world. Right. And it's hard in a way because you're right, of course, that someone who the colour of their skin makes them visibly a sign of discrimination, visibly open to discrimination. But that, in a way, I feel, shows the insidious way in which Jews can suffer it. It's much more like, oh, I see this is going on. You know, the only example I can give, which is something like that, which was a little bit confusing, because I think when something like that happens, you're not quite sure how to react to it, was in in middle school where we had a teacher, the head teacher, and we would have assembly and we would sing hymns, which I absolutely loved and didn't think that, that there was anything wrong with us, you know, singing hymns. And because... A lot of the Muslim kids would go to mosque in the evening and would do prayers. They would rock with the prayers. So backwards and forwards, most often, or side to side, whichever way you rocked. Although rocking's not part of the faith, so I don't know why kids used to rock. And so you'd find these kids singing, you know, morning has broken, and and they'd be rocking. And I remember (laughs) the head teacher saying, stop rocking, you're making me sick. It's not the mosque. Right, right. And I remember thinking, how does he know we go to the mosque? You know, and that was probably the only moment Mm. where I remember thinking, ooh, we've just all been you know, kind of pointed out. And interestingly, what I felt was, why are all these other brown children rocking? And why have they made us, you know, the the butt of attention now? And why why did they need to rock? So rather than thinking, how dare this head teacher pick out all these kids and now make us the kind of uh, the point of you prejudice. You victim blame. Yeah, I victim blame. No, I, but I, that's such a thing I think that you do as a minority, which is I think that one time you're upset that you're being discriminated against. Another point, you might be upset that you're somehow drawing that attention. You've somehow caused it by doing the thing mm-hmm. that identifies you. I mean, actually, I must just say something as well, which I didn't know, which is 
as I grow older, I discover how much, you mentioned halal and kosher before, there are these weird connections between mm. Judaism and Islam. So what you just described, I would call davening. And mm. davening is a thing that religious Jews do when they pray, which is to move backwards and forwards. Right. And I always think, what are, they, what are they doing that for? But it must be part of losing yourself in a kind of trance, I think. Right. I mean, I'm always, I mean, this is a bit theological, but when I wrote The Infidel, there's a scene at the end of The Infidel where... Omid Jalili, who plays the main character, finally kind of grows up and admits that he's Jewish, sort of publicly, or born Jewish, but he does it by reading the Old Testament and the Quran and discovering all the links between them. Right. And I never realised until I wrote that that they're telling the same stories, that really when they say it's an Abrahamic religion, it's the same story. So to choose an actual example, there's this moment, and tell me if I'm wrong, but so just let me say this because it might be wrong because I'm not a scholar, but there's a moment in the Quran. That Quor- makes two of us. Okay, so there's a moment in the Quran where I believe the English translation says something like, you know, a plague upon the Jews, right? And sometimes that's used by fundamentalists to say, you know, there's examples in the Quran that we should hate Jewish people or whatever. But then I read it, and what it is, is the story of the golden calf. Mm -hmm. And the story of the golden calf, which I obviously knew from when I was a kid, is where Moses goes up the the Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. And while he's up there, some Jews lose faith and start worshipping a golden calf. And those are the Jews that are cursed in that saying, Mm -hmm. i.e. the Jews that have got it wrong, that are no longer part of the proper religion, they should be cursed for worshipping the golden calf. And the Old Testament says that too. Yes, but somehow it's kind of attributed to Islam. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose didn't understand much about comparative religions But what I, when I was growing up, but what we were taught were very strong stories about Isa, Jesus, Mary, and and the followers of Isa. We were taught really strong stories about Musa, Moses, and his people, and we were told that we had to love the people of the Abrahamic religions because they were as our own, effectively, tribes, because they were part of the Abrahamic faith. And and the Ten Commandments was compulsory viewing. You know, the old version of the Ten Commandments really basically made. You look back on it now and you think, oh, God, I can't believe my dad put us through this. Every Christmas, for some reason, it would come on and then we would watch, sit there and watch the Ten Commandments. With Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston, yeah. <laughs> and so we would sit there and watch the Ten Commandments. And it was such an integral part of our upbringing. We were told that these were different versions earlier versions of the same faith and that, you know, our faith, Islam, was really just the kind of two point, whatever, 3.0 version of it. And again, I think we, I never really understood that there was a huge difference between us as religions. I, I thought that where prejudice came in was people who believed in God and were religious and then these people over here who didn't like people who believed in God. But one of the things about that is that the binary that now exists between Jewish and Muslim, when I was growing up, that wasn't a thing. Any sense of who Muslims were, I think you can talk about, but emerged later than when I was young, which was in the 1970s. If there was a binary, it was Jew and Arab, which didn't exist in Britain. That was over in the Middle East. We know that the Jews and the Arabs are in conflict and fighting, whatever. But even then, I don't think as a young Jew... I had a sense that that was to do with their Muslimness. That just seemed like a geographical 
conflict to me. It's only later on that the sense of like, oh, the identity that we're sort of in a binary with is Muslim. I think for me, that comes really from my own understanding of my Muslim identity. And for me, it really came to the fore post 9-11. Pre-9-11, I think I would describe myself as being part of the racial justice space. I think post 9-11, I suddenly realised that my Muslim identity was the main point of difference for society at large. And that if there was a conflict between my identities, it was between my faith and my country somehow saying they didn't get on with each other. And it was from both sides, by the way. So it was a state saying we're not entirely comfortable about these people who are now the outsiders. And it was it was my faith and people from within my faith wondering what their place in society is. Having worked out a place for being British and Asian, we were having to refine our identity as British and Muslim. And I actually checked out at that point. So about a year after September the 11th, I think there was a lot going on. My first marriage was falling apart. And I picked up my little girl, who was about four at the at the time. And I went overseas for about a year because I just felt like I needed to get away. I don't think I was ready to fight these battles all over again about what it meant to be but it's a British different and battle. accepted. But, oh, right, OK, but it's a different battle, isn't it, at that point, is that, like, you said when you were younger, the battle or the struggle would have been to be accepted as a person of colour. Now, there's a separate battle happening, isn't there, after 9-11, which is to be accepted as a British Muslim. They're still related, obviously. They're still, like, it's to do with Muslims being people of colour. It's not separate, but it's different. Is that right? It is. I think it's it's a difference. It's basically saying we have a problem with your religious identity. I mean, there are definitely racial undertones definitely. to it, right? But I I think that the, the point of difference then became your religious identity. And, and I think this is the thing that I... And, you know, it's a question I want to ask you. Do you feel like being a non-visible minority to some extent means that there are times when actually your Jewish identity is just not even relevant because people can't work it out. Yeah, that's an interesting... It's complicated, that. So, firstly, I mean, one of my first ever jokes were I've been beaten up twice in my life, once for being Jewish, once for being a Pakistani, which was true. Yeah. I was beaten up once by some, when I was a teenager by some Sikh-hiling skinheads, and then I was beaten up in Wembley Park by a bloke who kept on using the P word as he kept on hitting me. And I wondered about saying to him, no, no, I'm Jewish, but I don't think it would have made any difference. So, in terms of me, what I look like to a British person, mm. I look fairly different. And... I often get asked, oh, you know, I get asked, where are you from? Where are you really from? Even people who know me want to know, you know, where I'm from. And the fact is, I am from, you know, all sorts of places in terms of my heritage. My mum was a refugee. My dad's family were refugees going a bit further back. But I think the notion of Jews being white, which I talk about quite a lot in the book, of Jewish whiteness is one that is complicated in terms of the way that Jews are placed in a non-minority box by many progressives. And one of those things, is people say, oh, Jews can pass. Jews can pass, so therefore it doesn't really count. And what's problematic about that is two things. One is to move out of ethnicity, just for a moment, is no one would say that about a gay person. No one would say about a gay person, well, they can stay in the closet. They don't have to talk about being gay, so, you know, that's fine for them. Because it should be a case that as a minority you are empowered to speak. But the other thing is that Jewish passing, which is a privilege of sorts, is also weaponised against them all the time, meaning that racists 
far-right racists, basically, have a whole notion that Jews are amongst us, Jews are around, but they're hiding their identities because they can do that as the invisible minority. So we have to out them all the time. There are websites devoted, on which I'm on, uh, not that I've ever made any secret to it, but devoted to outing Jews on the basis that Jews can smuggle themselves. And this is a fascinating form of racism because I um, often talk to Muslim communities and I say, look, racists will always find a reason to be racist and with the Jewish community it is oh well we don't know where they are and they're too integrated and they're everywhere whereas with Muslim communities it's been oh they don't integrate they're separatists so whether you're too integrated or not integrated enough the racists will still find a reason to be racist towards you absolutely Um, and that's why I think you know the reason why this conversation for me is really important, David, because there's no doubt when we talk about our upbringings that both of us at some point have faced racism. Both of us have faced racism from what we would consider to be maybe the far right, you know, white, English, Scottish, Welsh, whatever, white British people who thought we were the other. But the bit of racism that I now worry about is anti-Semitism within Muslim communities and Islamophobia within Jewish communities. It's when two communities who've been at the receiving end of racism are now starting to direct that at each other. Right. This relationship is strained. Mm. There are people in both our communities which are quite happy for these relationships to break down, uh, for us to almost play against each other rather than with each other. It's on not just in our communities, matter. I think. It's also in other communities. I mean, in, essentially on the far left and the far right, They're very happy for it. And I think that's because a lot of these people, I'm talking about sort of white extremists here on both sides of the political spectrum, are very invested in keeping the binary going because to some extent that's how they get their identity. And it's why we're having this conversation, David, because I have listened to so much conversation over the last few months in the middle of a terrible war where the relationships between our communities are probably more strained than they have ever been. And the language that I've heard from all sides has been appalling because in the end we're going to take up our space and continue to take up our space in Britain because this is our home and hopefully at the end of these tough conversations and I'm looking forward to even tougher conversations with you we'll still be able to go out for a bite to eat kosher halal I'll have either I think we've sorted it out haven't we I think it's you know people say it's a complex difficult subject but I think it's all sorted isn't it? exactly yeah so it's done just, move on yeah let's want, keep talking they just want to listen to us and everything will be fine but next week I think we're going to get a little bit more serious aren't we well I think we are going to go there a bit more we're going to go out there to what's happening in the world which unfortunately tends to involve quite a lot of anti-semitism and Islamophobia so next week let's go there Muslim and a Jew Go There was brought to you by Instinct Productions. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.